Hello, you are listening to the Charles Benet Syndrome podcast. My name is Shaman Foy. My co-host, Eva Potts, is not with me today, but she will be back joining us next week. And today we have a special guest. Her name is Judith Potts. And I'm so glad that I have you here today, Judith. Oh, thank you very much for inviting me. So can you tell me about how you first found out about Charles Benet Syndrome? Yes, I will. It was probably now, I would think, oh, 10, 12, 15 years ago. I, I can't say exactly when. But my mother, whose name was Esme, was in her early 90s. And she lived on her own, but a very independent life. She had an eye condition called glaucoma. But in those days, I knew nothing at all about eye conditions. And I I didn't know how much of her sight had actually been lost, partly because she was very good at adapting and compromising and finding other ways of doing things. And she seemed to be very um, happy as she, as I say, lived on her own, but she was very good at completing cryptic crosswords, which she would do daily, and they were always right, which is certainly more than I can do. And um, I see, I thought she was fine until one day I was leaving her flat and she suddenly said, I do wish these people would get off my sofa. Well, of course, there was no one sitting on her sofa. And I took a deep breath because I didn't know what on earth I was going to say to this. And she said, and there's a child dressed in Edwardian costume that follows me everywhere and a hideous gargoyle-like creature that jumps from table to chair. And sometimes the whole place morphs into an alien environment. And then she went on to talk about being in the middle of an Edwardian funeral procession with the horses and the clergy in their red cassocks. And I was thinking, this has got to be dementia. And there is no doubt that that word was hanging in the air between the two of us. But then I thought, well, hang on a minute, she does these cryptic crosswords. She's a clever woman. She seems perfectly sane to me. So I said, well, are you okay if I leave you? And she said, yes. So off I went. She talked about um, what she was seeing as her visions. Um, and I thought, well, maybe it is some kind of spiritual thing. I, I, I just don't know. Anyway, I went home and with the most enormous piece of luck that very day, I read a tiny paragraph buried in the health pages of one of our newspapers about a condition which developed when sight is lost. And it was called Charles Bonnet syndrome. And it was a perfect description of what was happening to Esme. So I called her. I said, look, I've, I've discovered what this is. Do not worry. I will ring your ophthalmologist tomorrow and we will find a cure. And that's when it all went wrong. Because when I rang her ophthalmologist, he refused to discuss Charles Bonnet syndrome. I said to him, but this is what it is, isn't it? And he just would not answer, absolutely refused. So then I went to her general practitioner. I think you have family doctors. It's a similar kind of thing. So I went to the GP and I said, this I think is Charles Bonnet syndrome. The GP said, no, it isn't, it's dementia. Uh, CBS doesn't exist. And I said, no, 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 it really does exist. But no, I couldn't shift her. So then I went to the optometrist I think you call them uh, retinal specialists. And uh, I told the same story and he said, I've never heard of it. So 
I thought, well, what am I going to do? I, I really do need to get some help. So then I did what we're always told not to do, but thank goodness that we do. I went online and I found Professor Dominic Fitch at King's College University in London. And uh, at that time, I was writing a health column for one of our newspapers, which was actually all about cancer because I'd had breast cancer and they asked me to do it. And I thought, you know, no one's heard of this condition. I think I should include this in my column. So I called Professor Fitch and I said, can I come and see you? And he said, absolutely. And I went to see him and he then explained to me what was happening. And what he said, I say to everybody to this day, when you have full sight, there are messages which run all the time from the retina in the eye to the visual cortex in the brain, the eye acting like a camera and the brain interpreting what you're seeing. As sight diminishes, those messages slow down or stop entirely. But for some reason that we just don't understand, the brain doesn't stop uh, interpreting anything, it fires up and creates its own images, the visions that Esme described. And as I'm sure you all know, they can range from something very beautiful to something terrifying. He was uh, determined that whatever I did, I had to say, and again, I still do to this day, this is not a mental health condition. It's caused entirely by the brain, which has nothing to do. So I went back to my desk and I wrote the world's first column about Charles Bonnet syndrome. And I was inundated with emails from all over the world, from people saying, thank goodness this isn't a mental health condition, who wanted more information. And at that time, I really didn't have very much more information to give, uh, or who wanted to tell me their stories. And I continued to write and CBS stayed with Esme to the end of her life. And actually, she did get to the point where she didn't believe that what I was saying, she was convinced that what she was seeing were real. But I think that was because she died when she was 97. And I think CBS almost drove her mad in those last few years because the visions were always there. And after she died, I thought, you know, I wonder if I ought to start some kind of a, a campaign to raise awareness of this condition. But you know what it's like in life. You, you think you'll do something and then you don't get the time and something else crops up. And then one day I received an email from a professor, in fact, at a university in New York, who told me the story of her mother, who had been admitted to a dementia unit because the doctor said she was demented because she was seeing worms and slugs on her food and in her drink. And the family said, no, 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 she's, she's quite sane. And the doctor said, no, she will get worse. The only place for her to be is this unit. This poor woman could not get over the worms and slugs that she was seeing. She stopped eating and drinking and she died. And that was so awful and such a terrible shock then I thought, right, we cannot have this. Somebody has got to do something. So in 2015, at our House of Commons, our Parliament building, I, with Professor Dominic Fitch, launched Esme's Umbrella in memory of my mum 
And I use the umbrella logo to shelter everyone who develops this horrible, horrible condition. And since then, well, a great deal has happened. Wow, what a story. What a story. And it's amazing how things just lined up the way they did. And uh, you were able to get some information and find Dr. Dominic Fitch and do all of the things. Can you talk a little bit back, uh, more about your mother? And uh, I know you said in the last few years, it was kind of difficult for her and she wasn't able to kind of get over the hump. Uh, but were there like highs and lows? Did she have good moments or was it just kind of a downward spiral the last few years of her life? I think, I think it had probably developed... The reason I don't, I can't tell you exactly when it developed was that I don't really know because I think she probably lived with a few visions, a few Charles Bonnet syndrome visual hallucinations for possibly a year, maybe longer before she said anything to me. And I think she only said something because they were becoming more frequent. Now, what... First of all, I didn't know what it was, as I've said, but but also um, because I didn't know what it was, I had no idea what would make it worse. And it is a vicious circle. So the more anxious she got about what she was seeing, or if it frightened her, the worse CBS uh, got too. Um, and I think what was happening was she was becoming very stressed by these hallucinations um, and I tried very hard to reassure her. She was never offered any medication. We didn't actually know at the time about distraction techniques. I tried to, in, in fact, I don't quite know why, but it came into my head to say to her, well, why don't you try and brush the gargoyle off the table or um, walk towards the child? And so when she was sort of 94, 95, that worked. But as she then got older, her strength was going. She was a very strong woman, but but this was so tiring that I think her strength was going and she just almost gave up. So the last couple of years, the hallucinations were with her most of the time. Okay. I think I think now she would have been given some medication, but but not then. So can you talk about some of your the things that you're doing with your organization currently and how you're trying to spread awareness or maybe some kind of other things that are going on? Uh, yes, certainly I can. And it's, I think, where to start? Well, to go back to 2015, um, because I wasn't a charity, I was just a campaign, um, it's not legal to collect money because you can't have an account into which to put it. So uh, there's a big charity here called Fight for Sight, and they do research on all sorts of eye conditions. And the chief executive came to me and said, would you like us to give you a restricted fund? So if somebody does give you some money, you can put it in that fund and it can be used only for CBS research. So I said, marvellous. So the first thing that happened was that... Um, after I think probably about 18 months, we had £12,000. Now that sounds like a lot of money, but not in the field of research. It is literally a drop in the ocean. But it, we thought, well, well, we'll see if anyone's interested. So we put out a call for a researcher 
and we got one person because no one had heard of CBS. No one was interested at all. Luckily, this was a, a someone who'd been a student of Professor Fitch's. So she did the very first piece of research since Professor Fitch had done his original research on visual hallucinations in the 1990s. So she did her little piece of research and proved that um, the brains of people with CBS are more active, they're more excitable. What we don't know is, is why. Were they more excitable before CBS developed? Is that why CBS develops? We, we don't know. But that was the first piece of research. And then um, spool on another few years, and we put out another call, we got some more money, and I also had other charities by then interested in joining in. So we had quite a big pool of money. And then we got five responses, one of which was from Oxford University, which of course is one of the best universities in the world. So that was very exciting. So they took this piece of tiny piece of original research and um, they have they are developing it at this moment. What they have done is they are sitting volunteers under a very sophisticated scanner and watching what happens before, during, and after the hallucination. Professor Holly Bridge, who, who is um, the lead scientist uh, on this piece of research, said to me that she wonders whether two things. One, is there a higher pathway than the one I described earlier um, from the eye to the brain? Is there a higher pathway? Are there images held in there? I have no idea. I'm not a scientist, so I don't know whether they'll be able to prove anything. But that's what they are looking at. And they are also looking to see if there is some kind of chemical being introduced into the brain uh, before the visual hallucination appears. And <clears throat> what is fascinating for me is that when I, uh, when I wrote my health column, I wrote a great deal about the medical detection dogs. I think you have these kind of dogs in America too. Um, they, uh, they can sniff cancer for a start, brilliantly well, better than any human test. But the other thing they do is they are alert dogs for conditions like um, epilepsy, diabetes, Addison's disease, some condition where uh, medication is required to intervene before some kind of disaster happens to the body. And I discovered that two guide dogs were warning their owners before their hallucinations appeared. And I thought, that's really interesting. So I got in touch with the medical detection dogs, the chief executive. I explained to her about Charles Bonnet syndrome. And I said, do you think these dogs are doing that? And she said, yes, I do. And the first thing she said was, there will be a chemical change in the body. That is what the dogs are uh, detecting. So when, if, if they're looking after someone with epilepsy, before the epileptic seizure, the odor of the skin of the person changes because of the chemical being introduced into the brain. So... I feel very happy about this because that works very well with the Oxford research. And we have this tiny little cockapoo dog called Eliza, who's a miniature cockapoo with the most amazing nose in the world. <clears throat> and so they are doing some research as well to see at what point before the hallucination appears, does the odor of the skin change? 
So those are two very exciting pieces of research. And then um, one of the things, I've done a lot of things in my life. One of the things was um, I taught acting uh, because I was an actress to um, to children. So children are very close to my heart. I have my own children, my grandchildren. And I thought, you know, I watched what happened to Esme. What must it be like for a child? So I spoke to pediatric ophthalmologists, most of whom said, hmm, don't think that happens to children. And I said, but, but why not? Because surely it's exactly the same as an adult. Their brains have seen the world, surely it happens. Anyway, I finally found Professor Maria Musaji at uh, Moorfields Eye Hospital, which is our enormous world-famous eye hospital in London, and talked to her, and she is a pediatric as well as an adult ophthalmologist, and she said, well, of, of course. So she did a piece of research and proved prevalence in children, which is fantastic. So now she and a psychologist called Dr. Lee Jones, are talking to the children and the families to identify how it affects them and, more to the point, what we can do to support them. Because it's very difficult. Um, there is this wonderful film called A Spectrum, which has been made for Esme's Umbrella by professional filmmakers. And it, it, it traces the lives of two people who live with CBS, one of whom, his name is Miles, he developed CBS when he was four years old. He told nobody except his four-year-old friend. And he and his friend fought the monsters. And of course, his four-year-old friend was fine with that. If my friend sees monsters, I'll help him fight them. <clears throat> when he got to his teenage years, well, not so cool, is it, to talk about monsters in your teens? And so he said nothing more. He's about, I think he's about 50 now. A couple of years ago, he read something I had written and contacted me. We talked about it and I said, yeah, I'm sure that's Charles Bonnet syndrome. There's nothing else wrong with you, it's got to be. And I said, I hope your family are being supportive. And he said, I've never told them. So he'd been married for about 25 years and had never told his wife. He has now, and life is much better. And that is one of the reasons why I am completely determined that we will find ways of supporting the children so that they feel able to talk about it without being teased or ridiculed by their friends. And the only way we can do this is, of course, to educate the teachers. It's a big job, but... That's one of the things that we're looking at this year um, because I just know that for some children, it is incredibly difficult. I have spoken to parents who have told me that for quite some time, they'd accused their children of lying. They said, no, come on, don't be ridiculous. You're not seeing a python on the floor. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, and eventually when they discovered what it was, they, of course, felt terribly guilty. So we need to try and protect the parents from this as well. But to make absolutely certain that everyone knows about this and so the children feel able to talk. So that's a big thing this year. The other thing is that our lovely Professor Dominic Fitch has retired. I told him he couldn't, but he insisted he had to. 
So he is still my medical advisor. He will still answer questions. He will still do research, but he is not a clinician. And as he was the only clinician in the whole world, we are stuck. So I am now trying to persuade our health authorities to find some new doctors who will diagnose because diagnosis is the thing we don't really have. Ophthalmologists, consultant ophthalmologists will, will say to a patient, oh, what you've got is Charles Bonnet syndrome. Let's just do um, a check on your brain to make sure it's nothing else. But they're not always keen to do that. And we really do need specialists to work with them. Because what we do know is that if someone is warned before that first hallucination appears, they will recognize it for what it is and not think they're losing their mind. And the outcome is so much better for them. So that's another thing we're doing this year, searching, searching, searching for doctors who will take this on. Um, I think it'll have to be psychiatrists. Professor Dominic Fitch was a psychiatrist, is a psychiatrist. Um, I, I think that's the only way I'm going to get our, our National Health Service to do it, is to give it to psychiatrists, much as I don't want to do that, because that will put people off talking about it. But there is a way around it. If we can just call them Charles Bonnet syndrome specialists, that would be great. So that and my ESME's Children and Young People campaign, those are, are big campaigns. And then the third one is, is the awareness to continue this awareness raising by, we have ESME's Friends, which are online and, and on the telephone um, support groups, which are run by, we have a lot of low vision charities, tiny little charities here. And um, quite a few of them will run these support groups. And I know that Jonathan Ward runs a very big one, and he's been on your podcast from Thomas Pocklington Trust in London. So he, I send everyone to him, but there are others. But what I now want to do are, um, I call them pop-up days. So persuading people in maybe eye clinics, hospitals, low vision charities to run a day every so often where all my information is there. People can come and learn about Charles Bonnet syndrome. So there's quite a lot going on. I did actually also early on um, work with a very eminent ophthalmologist in America called Dr. August Colenbrander from uh, Smith Kettlewell. And he and an and equally eminent one here approached the World Health Organization for me. And that's why Charles Bonnet syndrome has a code now in the taxonomy of diseases and conditions, which this one is called ICD-11. Those faceless people in Geneva refused to remove the word temporary, even though I said it's not for some people, it will go on forever. They wouldn't remove it. So I do have more work to do there. Sorry, I'll stop talking. <laughs> no, no problem. This is great information to get out there. And I, I appreciate that. Uh, you mentioned that you would like to start working with some other doctors. Uh, how can doctors contact you if they're interested in working with you and your organization? Oh, I think just via my website, um, if you go on to www.charlesbonnysyndrome.uk, there is uh, a way you can email me 
from that. That's probably the easiest. Or you can just email judith at charlesbonnysyndrome.uk. Um, but please do. I know there is a doctor in America. I discovered, I, I talked to, to Dr. Gary uh, Cusick about her. She is at a Mayo Clinic, and I can't just off the top of my head remember where. It's Dr. Um, Scorian. Dr. Scorian from the Mayo Clinic. That's right. Yeah. That's right. Yes. And mm -hmm. she has agreed to take. He's actually um, a man. Yeah. Take patients. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Dr. But I Ingenier. don't know how mm -hmm. your insurance companies would work with that. I don't know if they accept CBS. Well, actually, there's a code for CBS now that uh, Eva Potts is aware of. She's given me that code, so uh, I can I can look that up and I can put that in the show notes here. But we're making progress here, thanks Thank to you. all of the things that you're doing there. So, uh, wow. What would you say to somebody who is struggling that has CBS and they may be listening to this podcast and they're having a particularly difficult time coping with it? What, what advice or things would you say to them? Well, the first thing I say now is, please, would you go to your family doctor and have all your medication checked? Because we know that there is medication, it is actually on the website too, um, that makes CBS worse. So there's proton pump inhibitors, which almost everybody over the age of about 60, I think it seems to be on, they are... They are for gastric problems. And they if you have to take antibiotics, you're often given one. Ours over here are called things like omeprazole. I don't know what they're called in America. Um, and they kind of line the stomach. They make CBS worse. There are alternatives. So um, the doctor should be able to give you an alternative. And there are some eye drops. There are some urinary incontinence medication that makes it worse. There are quite a few things. So... The first thing to do is to go and check that it's not being made worse because you're taking medication that with side effects. Um, then I think I would I would look at the distraction techniques. What we know is that first of all, CBS tends to leap into action when the brain is quiet. So just before you go to sleep, just when you're waking up. Maybe you're dozing in a chair after lunch um, or, and this is the worst time for people, or you're a passenger in a car because your eyesight doesn't allow you to admire the view. You're not responsible for driving it. It's possibly quite quiet because the driver's concentrating on the road and your brain quietens down. And that's when... People tell me they see giant things coming towards them, like as though you're about to drive into a straight into a giant building or a giant truck or huge waves or cliffs. Why they are giant when you're a, uh, uh, sitting in a car as a passenger, I, I don't know. Um, but it's quite important to try and keep the brain as active as possible and then if an hallucination starts, it, you then try to get rid of it by using the distraction techniques, pointing at it. Um, there is an eye exercise that Professor Fitch um, has invented, which is, I think, on the website. Um, some people click their fingers, clap their hands, stand up, sit down, walk about, sing. Singing is quite good. Um, 
Also, if you have any sight at all, you might like to try and draw what you're seeing. If you don't have any sight, um, in a funny kind of way, it's slightly easier because if you have no sight at all, then you know that the cat or the dog or the leopard can't possibly be real because you can't see if, if a cat or dog or leopard walked into the room, you wouldn't be able to see it. It's when people have a little bit of sight that things are difficult. So is the car on the pavement real or not? So that's when you have to be very, very careful. But using distraction techniques for some people work. They don't work for everybody. Um, there are things like people can try yoga, mindfulness, meditation, uh, eating ginger if it doesn't interfere with any other medication that you're taking. And please never stop medication without um, asking your doctor first. Ginger is quite good. Um, we don't know why. It does have medicinal properties. It might be helping some people. Um, the legal CBD oil capsules helps some people too. Um, I have to say, I think the illegal helps as well. <laughs> I don't know if it is illegal in, in America. It's illegal here. Um, uh, but so everybody is different. And this is the one of the difficulties is that Charles Bonny syndrome is different for every single person. So we have to have a broad suggestion of things that might or might not help. Now, there is medication. It's not CBS specific. It is for conditions like epilepsy and dementia. It does not mean you have developed either of those conditions. It's just that for some people, and I have to keep stressing that, for some people it is worth trying, but it does have quite unpleasant side effects. So you have to balance it. And if you can handle it without medication, I think on the whole that's better. Yeah, I, um, spoke, I spoke to an ophthalmologist, uh, sorry to cut you off, and the ophthalmologist said pretty much what you said. He said that when people take medication for CBS, more often than not, it does more harm than good. Uh, yeah. So, And so, I heard some experts say it's because the hallucinations are being triggered by different parts of the brain than if you have a mental condition like dementia or schizophrenia or something. But yeah. Obviously, we're not doctors, so we can't specifically address that. And even doctors are finding new information about uh, Charles Bonnet every day. So it is definitely something. We're actually going to have a, an episode on this podcast where we just talk about solutions. Well, not solutions, but things that you can do to cope and, and uh, give some natural things and some techniques that you can do all based off things that you have said on your website or you have listed and, and other people too, like that actually have the condition, what's worked for them. So uh, I look forward to releasing that episode soon. That would, that would be great. Um, our, our new thinking is um, counseling. Um, I've spoken to quite a few people who have talked to counselors Um and I think that has helped them. Of course, the counsellor then has to learn about Charles Bonnet syndrome first. Um, I don't think it would work unless they actually knew about it. But I do have a, um, a very short list um, of, of, of counsellors who've, who've agreed um, that I can refer people to them. Three of them have sight loss and one of them has Charles Bonnet syndrome. So that's, that's quite useful. Um, 
they obviously understand it so much more. Because living with sight loss is difficult enough. But then when CBS develops, you people tell me it's like taking a another downward step um, because there's so much to cope with and then along comes something else. And if they've not been warned, it is so much more difficult. We have here, um, there's a form called a CVI form. I have absolutely no idea what that stands for. But anyway, it's a CVI form, um, which the a consultant ophthalmologist has to complete when someone's eyesight is so bad that they are termed legally blind. And then that person can get, uh, get financial help. Um, up to now, CBS has not been on that um, form at all. But I have been working, and I'm sure your government is the same as here, for four years to get a little tick box on the form so that the consultant has to mention it, mention CBS to the patient. At this moment, the form with my tick box is with the government's lawyers. Don't ask me why, but it is. Um, and I am hoping that they will look at it and say, well, this is a terribly good idea and pass it, in which case no one should be without the knowledge. So is this form the type of form that will be given at an ophthalmologist or optometrist visit if someone has an eye condition? I think it has to be an ophthalmologist. An ophthalmologist okay. is the one that declares a person is legally blind. That doesn't always mean that they've lost all their sight, but they've lost a certain amount of it. Oh, and when I talk about losing sight, when I first started, uh, Professor Fitch said to me, it's, it's CBS develops when someone has lost over 60% of sight. Now, in the last eight years, it's become clear but actually it varies with each person. So that over 60% is no longer, we now say a variable amount of sight. So it could be a small amount. Um, as you say, it's, a, it's that part of the brain. Um, and you can see it under the, uh, under the scanner, you can see when an hallucination occurs and you can see the part of the brain. So if it's the part that uh, for faces, you can see that, it, that the person will be seeing some kind of a face or a person. If it's the part for colour, then you can see that. It's quite extraordinary, but it is possible to see. And I, I am convinced that possibly not in my lifetime, but in whoever takes over from me, you probably, <laughs> <laughs> um, we'll, we'll see uh, a diagnosis being made very quickly and something done about it. Okay. I, I'm sure. I'm sure. Because I'm now sure. people yeah, are we have hope. to keep faith. We have to keep hope. It's very important to say these things very and believe true. these things. And I, and I do. I do believe that. And, and it's amazing because the brain is so complex, and it's not like just people with glaucoma get CBS. Somebody can have macular degener yeah. degeneration or okay. cataracts or glaucoma, and then everybody's upbringing is different. You know what would probably be a good study if they can take identical twins and they both mm -hmm. had some kind of a visual impairment and then see one maybe gets CBS and one does and one 
uh, reacts to their CBS a certain way and one doesn't because they have the same DNA, it will be good. But we even know if you don't have CBS, CBS, and you have an identical twin, the personalities could still be different, which is, which is amazing. Uh, you know, so. No, that's right. That's right. And uh, or if they both have uh, Charles-Bonnet syndrome, do they both see the same things? You know, I mean, it would be totally fascinating, wouldn't it? And you and you can be born blind and get Charles-Bonnet syndrome. So, what's the chances that two twins will actually develop a condition? I guess yeah. that could be high if you have the same DNA, and then both go blind and lose enough sight at least to be able yeah. to have Charles-Bonnet. And then some people don't get Charles Bonnet and some people do get it. So, you know, it, it could be yes. some complexities, but you're doing a lot of studies, which is so, so helpful. Mm -hmm. uh, now, as far mm -hmm. as these therapists, you mentioned some therapists that you are, or counselors, are they located in the UK? Uh, yes, they are. They're located in the UK. Okay. And somebody um, can just email you to be able to get the, those names that they would like to contact them? Absolutely. Yes. Absolutely, because they do a lot of their counselling or their therapy online anyway. So I would have thought, I mean, they're not free of charge. I don't know how much they charge, but they're not free of charge. I mean, one day I'm hoping that a multi-zillionaire will come along and give me a large amount of money and then I can pay for people to have counselling. But at this precise moment, there isn't one in sight. So I'm not sure that's going to happen. But just talking, um, you were saying, you know, it, any, it, it can develop from any one of the hundreds of different eye conditions it can also develop after a stroke or some kind of a brain injury which damages the optic nerve or the optic pathway so and it can be it can also come from diabetes from diabetic retinopathy uh, from multiple sclerosis which is called optic neuritis now that one the optic neuritis is the only one that can be, well, apart from cataracts, actually, they can be taken out. The optic neuritis can be cured. And so the Charles-Bonnet syndrome will go away with MS if there's a there's a, some particular way they can do something to the eyes. But uh, otherwise, it's you could have an accident or you could have cancer in the eye. If you fall over and damage the uh, optic nerve, then that, that can cause CBS too. So it's quite... It's quite complicated. It really is. It really is. I saw, I saw a video that you had on YouTube where you spoke about isolation and how during the pandemic, your agency got so many calls and and so many more yeah. people developed. It seems like they developed a Charles Bonnet syndrome or it got worse. Uh, can you speak That's about right. that? Yes, of course. Well, we had but before um, uh, COVID hit us we were building up our face-to-face -face support groups. We called them ESMI's, ESMI's rooms, ESMI's rooms. Um, and then COVID came along and they all had to close. Within one week of lockdown, it became very obvious that people with CBS were having a terrible time because I was getting calls and emails from desperate people who said, my CBS has got so much worse. I'm having more episodes during the day, and I'm also seeing really terrifying images. And I thought, oh, right. So that's when we started the Esme's Friends groups online and on the telephone, which have continued. But I thought, what am I going to do? So I then contacted Professor Maria Musaji, who I've mentioned before. I told her about this, and she said, right, we need a study. So 
during lockdown, she and Dr. Lee Jones did a study which proved that the isolation, because people were living alone, um, and also the isolation of living with Charles Bonnet syndrome, because no one else is there inside your head. So it is a little bit of an isolation anyway. Um, <clears throat> stress, the stress of, of COVID, were we all going to die? What, what was going to happen to us? Would we ever be able to walk out of our houses? And we already knew that fever makes it worse. So if you get a cold um, and you get a fever, then your CBS will get worse. So the combination of all these things was what was happening to people. And that's why we started the ESME's friends groups so that people could talk to each other during lockdown. And they were a lifeline and still are a lifeline for people. It's really one thing that I will say that's really difficult for someone that has Charles Bonnet syndrome is obviously vision loss, which you have to have. So then when you have severe vision loss, depending on your living situation, you may not be able to get out. So then if you can't get out, you're isolated. And then if you have Charles Bonnet syndrome, you are often fearful, more often than not, or at least annoyed by what you're seeing. And like you yeah. said, it's usually when you're relaxed or when you're sleeping. So then maybe you don't sleep. And then when you don't sleep, you get more anxious. And then when you're more anxious, you have more hallucinations. Yeah. And it's like you said, it's like a slippery slope or something. And, and it's, it's yes, kind of difficult. It's like, it's kind of like it has to be mind over matter. And that's easier said than done. But uh, yeah. it seems to be that somehow, some way through support, through a good therapist, through whatever it is that you do to kind of ground yourself, it's like mind over matter. And just, you know, so, yeah. that's, so that's why I have sympathy because it's not an easy condition. And one, I, I heard it's one not. person say, he said something that stuck with me. He had CBS and I was in a support group meeting and he said, you name it, I've seen it, but it doesn't bother me because I know it's not real. And I said, wow, what a powerful statement. Everybody can say that. Uh, his personality is different than the next person, but that really stuck with me. And he just determined that he's not going to let it bother him. You know, and that yeah. was really, really, yeah. uh, I couldn't believe that. I think, I think it also depends what, what the images are that you see. Um, you know, I've talked to fairly elderly people who see the most horrific things and things that I can't even begin to talk about myself. Um, and that I think... I, I can understand why they think they're losing their minds. Um, but <clears throat> I think the younger people deal with it better because I think they are more likely to be able to cope. But what we have found is that students are having to leave university because the hallucinations get in the way of the lectures and they can't concentrate and they just give up. And that's terrible. So... That's why we need to, to, with the children and young people, we need to make sure that, that they have the support there. Um, but yes, in the going out, you know, people tell me they won't go out because they have a little bit of sight and they don't know whether the hole in the pavement in the sidewalk is there or not. Um, is the car in front of them parked on the, on the sidewalk? Is it really there? Is it not? very hard and then of course if you're crossing a road and a tiger appears in front of you and tigers are incredibly common i don't know why people see tigers but they see a lot of them even if you know it's it's a um a charles bonnie syndrome 
visual hallucination, you instinctively try and get out of the way. So your fight or flight mode kicks in. And then you either topple over because people with not very good sight don't have terribly good balance, um, or you trip over something that's there. That may take you to a doctor or a hospital. No one will have heard of Charles Bonnet syndrome. They will call in the psychiatrist and the whole thing gets completely out of control. And so people stay at home. And that's a real shame. Yeah, yeah. I was thinking that I listen to some people, I listen to everybody talk whenever I go to support groups and just gather the information. If I have anything positive to say, I will. But uh, I've heard some people that are single say, if I just wasn't alone, it would be better because they they can be scared of the hallucinations and things that they see. And then I've heard people that are married say that they have a difficult time with their spouse and the, sp the spouse will say that they're having difficult times because maybe they will get angry that their spouse doesn't see what they see, or they will try to swing at the hallucination and hit their spouse. So it, it, can, it can be challenging either way. So it seems like, like other things in life try to, do the best that you can with what you can. And a lot of time, like I say, is that you may not be able to control what you see, but you can try to work on controlling how you respond to it because uh, you're just not able to just make your mind do what you want at this particular time, you know, so. That's right. No, that's exactly right. And I think for partners or carers, it is terribly difficult because it, it's a little bit like living with someone with dementia in the sense that the person will constantly have to check whether there's water on the floor or is there is there fire through that door i can see flames you know and this is a constant repetition so the carer has to keep saying no 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 there's nothing there it's all fine it's and it's it's very hard it's really mm -hmm. difficult um so we need to we need to think a lot more about um helping them too which is what i hope my Charles Bonnet Syndrome Information Day in Manchester in March. I'm hoping that quite a few people will come with their family members and then we can discuss how we can we can help if there's some way, what would they like us to do? Um, I think that would be that would be good. Uh, so can you, we can you speak a little bit about that? Uh, it's right as of today is February 17th and your event is in March. So I will release this episode before the event, but uh, it would be good if you could uh, say a little bit about it just in case someone's able to attend. That, yes, that would be lovely. Everyone is welcome. Um, everyone with an interest in Charles Bonnet syndrome. You don't have to be a patient or, you, or a nurse or a, um, uh, any kind of um, worker in a charity. If you're interested, um, come along. It's at Manchester Metropolitan University on the 16th, Saturday, the 16th of March. Doors open at nine o'clock. It's free. Lunch is provided. And we have three CBS researchers. We have Gail with the little medical detection dog, Eliza, who's going to talk about their research. We have Dr. Jasleine Jolly, who has done a great deal of what I call social research, great deal about um, what it's like to live with, how it disrupts lives and all of that. So she's going to come and talk about her research. Um, and then we have Dr. Lee Jones, who's a very senior scientist and the one I described earlier, who works with Professor Maria Musaji. He's going to talk about um, his work with children. 
Then we will show this marvellous film, Aspectum, which is a 20-minute film about two people who live with CBS, and it's quite brilliant, and we hope will be picked up by lots of film festivals, carrying the information about CBS with it. Uh, and then um, the two people in the film, Nina Chesworth and Miles Northwood, are coming as well. So uh, they will answer any questions, as is the one of the filmmakers. The other two are on big feature films at the moment, but he isn't, and he's going to come and talk about it as well. Uh, and then we'll just throw the session open and we'll talk about anything that anyone wants to discuss. And I think it's terribly important that uh, that these people are there so they can answer questions about research, which I can't. And also, I am not a doctor. <laughs> um, and I therefore, I have to be very careful about what I say, which is why I always, always say to people, these medications may be making it worse, but please do not stop taking them until you have checked with your family doctor. How can people register for this event? Uh, there's an Eventbrite uh, register. I don't know if you have Eventbrite in America. It's, yes, it's a, a sort of, you do? Okay, yes, so it's an Eventbrite invitation. It's on my website too. So you just click on that. If you can't find it, just email me, judith at charlesbonnysyndrome.uk and uh, I will do it for you. Um, we are hoping to have about eight, between 80 and 100 people. Well, that sounds great. So what I'll do, I'll actually put the information in the show notes of this episode. It'll be your website. It will be your email address. And if I can find the Eventbrite, which I'm sure I'll be able to find, I'll actually list that there. I'll send it, I'll send it to you. Yeah. I'll send it to you. Okay. Yeah. I was so happy to hear that. Well, first, I was sad to hear that the person that was in this new film didn't speak to their spouse and didn't speak to their other family members about Charles Benet for so long. Uh, but then I was happy to find out that uh, he spoke to his wife and things are so much better. So uh, it's, it's, it's really not easy to, to do that because people don't want to be said that they're mad or something or they have dementia. So what, what kind of advice or, or tips would you give to someone that is uh, in that situation? Maybe they're experiencing some things and they haven't said it to anyone. Well, I think if they are able to access the Internet, I would... I would look on there, find my website. And then I think what people tell me they have done in the past is they don't say to their partner or spouse, this is what I've got. They just show them the website and say, what do you think about this? And then having looked at it, they say, well, that's extraordinary, isn't it? And then they say, that's what I've got. Uh, and that, I think, helps. The other thing that uh, you, you can do is, of course, ask your, your consultant, your ophthalmologist, to tell your partner, um, and in doing so, explain the condition. But I think, I think if people have the information, they will believe you. It's, it's, it's when people say, I keep seeing these things, and people are, you know, there are people walking through my apartment, you think, oh, come on. Um, as I did with, with Esme, I had no idea what could possibly be wrong with her. Um, and I knew she was thinking dementia, and I was thinking dementia. But it was just lucky, really, that, that I found this little tiny piece in a, in a newspaper. I think there are more um, articles being written. In fact, one really lovely thing is that 
in uh, November last year on Charles Bonnet Syndrome Awareness Day, which is the 16th of November, all the researchers who have been researching Charles Bonnet Syndrome in the UK uh, all got together and they had a meeting of minds, which was great. And they talked about their research because I was very anxious that they wouldn't uh, they wouldn't be repeating research because there's no point. It's an incredible waste of money to do that. Very often I get papers sent to me from people in, in Europe um, who say, look, I've done this piece of research. Isn't it interesting? And I show it to Professor Fitch who says, no, but we've already done that. So we wanted to make sure that wasn't happening. So they met, they talked about what they had learned and what, where they were going to go now, what down which pathway they were going to take the research which is absolutely fantastic and I know that it would be lovely if we could get um, some research done in the states some I, I, I know people are thinking about it but at the moment I don't think there's anything actually happening um, but uh, I think in one of the things we we are going to do this year is form a membership so that People can join, it doesn't cost them anything. They can join Esme's Umbrella and volunteer to be part of research because it's hard getting people, you know, to um, to be prepared to sit under a scanner or whatever it might be or answer some questions on the telephone. This might be a question for Dominic Fitch, but is there some kind of a database for research that's done? So before someone starts research, they can go there and they can type in criteria of what they want to do and see like, oh, wow, this was already done. Uh, but I don't know, maybe you can ask him and get back to <laughs> to me or to our I listeners. Think, no, I think, I think there probably is, yes. Um, but what I'm going to ask, the these researchers um, that I was talking about, they are now going to put all their information together. And there is a, um, a journal, a medical journal called something very smart, and I can't remember, Therapeutic Advances in Ophthalmology, and it goes around the world. And the editor is going to do one specific edition in, I think, May or June, about Charles Bonnet syndrome only. And about five years ago, they asked me to write something, which I did. And I had a double page spread and I had um, the front page. Uh, and that was the first time any of those medical journals had written, had anything written about CBS. So when all this research is put together, and this goes around the world, then I'm hoping that um, researchers in America will start to say, hmm, this looks interesting. Can you tell us a little bit more about the film? Uh, yes, I can, about the film. Well, I was so fortunate. I was contacted a couple of years ago by a wonderfully kind and generous woman who had been a counsellor and a therapist and who is now retired. And she said to me, I would I would like to do something. She, she, I wrote something which she'd read. And she said, I really would like to do something to help. And I don't know what to do. But my nephew is a professional filmmaker. If I were to fund a 20-minute film, how would that be? Well, I was just so thrilled. So I said, this is amazing. I would absolutely love it. And so James 
um, and his two colleagues who have a little tiny company together when they're not out there doing, I think he's a lighting cameraman or something. Um, but they want to, they want to make a lot more documentaries. And so they, they said, how are we going to do it? And I put them in touch with these two people, Nina and Miles. And then I left them to it. And it's not just a talking heads film. It's not just two people saying, this is what happens to me. They talk to me, they talk to Professor Fitch, they talk to Professor Musaji. Um, but it's beautifully edited so that it's a really interesting film to, to watch. It's now got audio description on it as well, which I think Nina has done, uh, which is a good idea so that it's not... Uh, a voice that you've never heard before. So I think she's done some of it. I think an actor has done a bit more. Um, but uh, it's it's just, I don't want to spoil it too much, but it's just, it, it's it's just fascinating. It's so beautifully shot. Um, and the, the graphics, the, the way they illustrate what people are seeing is is extraordinary. I mean, they've done it just beautifully. And when we showed it in London, it didn't have the audio description on it because um, that takes a lot of doing. And I think they needed a bit more money to do that. But um, when they when we showed the original in London, we had two showings in the evening and people stood up and applauded. It was amazing. I, uh, and I was I was overwhelmed. They showed it to me the first time on, on a, a big laptop and I have to say I cried because I never thought anyone would make something so beautiful. Um, and then I cried again, of course, in the cinema as well uh, because it was just, just extraordinary. And it was one of those things that when, when it came to an end the first time, there was there was that moment of silence in the cinema because people were just so shocked. First of all, a lot of people had never heard of Charles Bonnet syndrome, so they'd been brought along by friends or whatever. And they, I think they were just so shocked that there could be a condition like that out there because they'd heard how it affected these two people. It's utterly brilliant. I can't wait to watch it. I, I really look forward yeah. to watch. And you're going to actually play it in Manchester on the uh, we'll in, in March. In right? And then after that, I will get them to give me the the the, the uh, platform and the password, and I'll give it to you. Oh wow! Okay, uh, I really uh, I really look forward to that. What would you say to a caregiver that's struggling and they have a family member or a loved one that uh, has Charles Monet and they're really struggling helping them with that? I would say it's all to do with patience, patience and reassurance constantly. And I think if the, if the person has lost all their sight, then the line I use is what I said earlier. But if a tiger walked into this room now, would you be able to see it? And they say no. I say, well, in that case, what you're seeing isn't real. Now, that doesn't make it any easier to walk through the tiger because there is a little bit of you that thinks, well, it just might be real. But I think um, it, it depends very much what also what they're seeing. It's very hard. Uh, one lady I spoke to told me that she got up in the night and she went to the bathroom. And when she came out, 
the landing between the bathroom and her bedroom had seemed to have expanded. And there were, you know, when you go to an airport, you have to queue up in that sort of way to get through security and you go left and then right and left and right. And, but there were hundreds of these facing her. And she said, I literally couldn't get back to my bedroom because I couldn't figure out which way it was. Even though I knew these things weren't real, I simply couldn't. And I had to call out and her husband came in and and got her. And I think it's to do with just being prepared to be patient, to, to be reassuring, to say, now, look, you know, if you see something, just tell me if it's there, you know, I'll tell you if it's there or not. And and make it as um, as kind of easy as possible so that the person can, so you end up with the person saying, is there a cat over there? No, there's no cat. Okay, fine. Um, this is easier said than done. And it is very much more difficult with someone who is very elderly because they do get so tired and it is an incredibly stressful condition to live with. Um, If you're trying to get through each day and you're constantly bombarded with images, and I think because they are silent, they're kind of more scary. if, if you have another con- a different condition, the image, if it's a person, will talk to you and you will talk back to it. But these are, of course, silent. So if you try and talk to them and nothing comes back, that's very frustrating. Um, and as you get older, you think, well, why are they not talking to me? This is incredibly rude. And it sort of takes over. And there is a, there's a big difficulty about has this affected the mind Have you had this and it's so awful that it has actually affected your mind, which I think is entirely possible in the late years. Um, I know there was a a case of a a lady whose husband contacted me and said she firmly believes there is a family living at the bottom of the garden and she keeps taking tea down to them. So I spoke to Professor Fitch and I said, what do you think? Do you think she has some kind of mental problem as well? And he said... No, he said, I think this is a coping mechanism. So her husband just had to let her. And then he would have to get out to the bottom of the garden and bring back cold tea. But it sort of helped her because she felt she'd done it. Other people would lay a place at a table for a character of some kind that they they can see. the the chief executive of the big charity Fight for Sight, who I mentioned earlier on, is actually new to the one that, that helped me out. But he has Charles Bonnet syndrome. And he sees, I think, it's a Second World War pilot who he first saw after he'd been to the pub. So I, the, the, the pub? You have pubs? Yes, you do. Uh, yeah. Bars. Been to a bar. yeah. uh, and I think his wife thought, oh, yeah, you know, we've had a few too many drinks today. Um, he he opened the door of the, their flat, walked in, <clears throat> and there was this military person standing there. That person, he now ha- sees all the time, and and if he doesn't, and he's 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 making a speech, he's worrying that he's not seeing 
<laughs> so it becomes very much part of some people's lives. Um, he feels that this one is like a good luck charm. Uh, it's very, very strange. But some people see such beautiful things that they just want it to go on forever. The problem is that they can't tell when it's going to happen. So it's no good sitting and thinking, right, come on, let's happen now because I'm feeling really on top of the world. That won't work. So it, you just don't know. Um, but it is so detailed. That is the other thing. And that is why it can be so frightening. Um, Nina, the lady in the film, she sees it's almost like a sheet hanging in front of her onto which are projected pictures. And on days, she's a mum, and as a mum, you get good days and bad days. And on good days, she sees pink unicorns and flowers and very happy things. And when she's not feeling so good or life is just not as easy, then she sees horrific, horrific images. Um, so we know that mood has a great deal to do with it. Okay, yes. Thanks for sharing. I have a question about Charles Manet Syndrome Awareness Day on November 16th. What types of things happen on that day? Do you have activities or, or webinars or, or what, what is the day about? We, yes. Um, last year, I got all the researchers and, uh, and the journalists that had written and people with lived experience, and we went to the Parliament building and we had, um, I, I just gave them an update on what was happening. And uh, Professor Musaji uh, launched her uh, pediatric uh, research there as well. This coming year, I'm going to ask um, people around the country to, what I did the very first year was I baked cookies in the shape of the umbrellas and decorated them and sold them. And that's an easy thing to do. So I think that's probably what we'll do this year. And we'll have pop-up, information um booths and uh biscuits to be sold that kind of thing but as it's only me it's quite hard to arrange all these things so i have to leave it to others and hope that they uh they will do something for me um which they do and and they do actually throughout the year and we'll, we'll send you know they don't collect a huge amount of money but gosh i'm grateful for anything that they can collect because Things like the day in Manchester, although that is, I am having help with paying for that, is very expensive. I mean, it's to have a, a technical person there so that we can show the film will cost us £250, which is a lot of money for a tiny charity. So um, it's it, anything that, that people can collect and, and send in is always used for people. I don't get paid. Uh, my... The, the, the young man who is going to help me for seven hours a week, he will be paid by another charity. Um, my trustees are not paid. So we all give of our time for nothing, which I'm, I think is right and proper. Um, I don't like charities where the chief executive is paid an exorbitant amount of money because that money could be going to the people that the charity was set up for originally. So I'm very happy to do this. I am certainly not complaining. But it means that every little penny that comes in is used for some reason for people. Um, it may be keeping up the website, but it's, it's therefore the information is there. 
how can people help ASME's umbrella? How can people help, uh, you know, spread awareness? They can help by talking to everybody they come across about Charles Bonnet syndrome. Every time you go to a doctor, take with you on my website, there is a letter which you can adapt, but it basically tells the doctor what Charles Bonnet syndrome is because far too many doctors don't know. And that's when the misdiagnosis comes in. So um, tell everybody that you meet about Charles Bonnet syndrome and talk to people. If you meet anyone who's losing their sight, just very gently say, do you ever see things that aren't there? Because lots of people do, very common. There are a million people at least in the UK and you know how tiny the UK is. So I cannot begin to imagine how many there are in your country. Um, and the more people that hear about it, uh, we, we run, um, uh, last year we ran a, an essay prize for medical students. And we're going to run another one this year. We got 53 entries last year, which I thought wasn't bad for the first year. I'm afraid AI has rather too much to do with some of the essays, but we did have two brilliant winners who didn't use AI. Uh, and they they received um, a small amount of money each, sponsored by actually a friend of mine. Um, and uh, we're going to run it again. And if we can educate the next wave of doctors who go into all the different areas of health so that they will always have that in their mind to ask, that would be, that would be very helpful too. Um, and yes, and if there's anybody out there with a, um, some spare cash, please give it to me because there's so many things that I want to do which I can't afford to do at the moment. Wow. Yeah, this this was a, a great hour and and a half almost. <laughs> you know, it's it's been very enlightening and helpful. And, and it's always a pleasure to hear you talk and you definitely have a passion for what you do and you've done so much because every single time that I go to a Charles Monet syndrome support group, they actually talk about you and say, Well, I was doing some research and I came across Esme's Umbrella or Judith Potts is doing this in the UK and, and I appreciate all the things you do and it's very helpful. And uh, it's making a big, huge difference. It really is. It really well, is. I'm it's my great pleasure, and I will continue until I can no longer do it. <laughs>